This episode contains discussion of Canada's residential school system. Please take care while listening. Resources for support are available on our website should you need them. On May 31st, 2015, I was walking towards City Hall in Ottawa, surrounded by a crowd of tens of thousands. As far in front of me and as far behind me as I could see, survivors, families of survivors, community members, elected officials, church congregants, Canadians of all walks of life were marching together in a spirit of truth and reconciliation. We passed Victoria Island, where the sacred fire burned strong. Past Library and Archives Canada, where millions of hard-fought-for documents poured over by the TRC staff were still housed. Past the Supreme Court of Canada, where in a few short years we'd be debating the fate over the preservation or destruction of residential school records. People were holding signs, reading, we are all in this together, and it's time for hope. The feeling of the past, present, and future coming together was almost tangible. This Walk for Reconciliation was part of the events that closed the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, a culmination of over six years of work documenting the truths of residential school survivors through thousands of hours of statements, millions of documents, and countless events across the country. Days later, I was standing in the back of a packed banquet hall in an Ottawa hotel, awaiting the release of the Commission's findings. Sage and sweetgrass smoldered in bowls in front of the hotel, while spontaneous round dances erupted in the lobby. People crowded into the room. Some sat on the floor while others spilled out into the hallway. Gathered there on that historic day, we watched the commissioners take the stage and listened as Commissioner Murray Sinclair released some of the most devastating the findings. In Canada. And today I stand before you and acknowledge that what took place in residential schools amounts to nothing short of cultural genocide. Listening to the coverage of this event, many across this country learned for the first time of the genocide committed by the Canadian settler state against Indigenous peoples and the role residential schools played in that violence. It was nothing less than a systematic and concerted attempt to extinguish the spirit of Aboriginal peoples. But as the survivors have shown us, they have survived. They are still here. These were hard truths that shocked many across this country into awareness about Canada's human rights record. But it also highlighted the strength of survivors, their courage and dedication to truth-telling, and how Indigenous peoples were succeeding in holding the churches and government to account. Addressing the crowd and the country, Commissioner Sinclair described the challenge that lay ahead. We must endeavour instead to become a society that champions human rights, truth and tolerance, not by avoiding a dark history, but rather by confronting it. To become this society, we need to bear witness to the past and to join in a vision for the future. This must be the goal of reconciliation. As commissioners, we have described for you a mountain. We have shown you the path to the top. We call upon you to do the climbing. But in that same building where we were gathered, just several floors above us, staff from the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation were still recording the statements of survivors, 
because there was still so much work to be done, truths to be shared, silences to be shattered. Even today, statement-gathering efforts remain ongoing. Seven years have passed since those weighty days in Ottawa, yet so many of the foundational truths shared by the Commission haven't yet reached mainstream consciousness. Both here in Canada and abroad, there remains a profound lack of understanding of the lived experiences of Indigenous peoples. Many remain unaware of the violence and genocide that created our country and the ongoing present-day effects of colonialism. Why is it so hard for the truths of Indigenous peoples to be heard? What are the roadblocks to truth-telling, and what can we do about them? My name is Rai Moran. My traditional name is Wapi Kinyu, which translates into White Golden Eagle. Through my dad's side, I'm Métis with roots in the Red River, specifically the community of St. Francis Xavier, where my family took script. On my mother's side, I'm settler Canadian with Scottish and English roots. I've worked on efforts to preserve and protect Indigenous truths for going on two decades now. From my time spent working on oral histories and languages, through my time as Director of Statement Gathering with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and later as Director of the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation, my belief in the importance of truth has been constant. I'm continuing all of this work today as a librarian at the University of Victoria. In this podcast, we'll hear from a diversity of Indigenous and non-Indigenous voices from across Canada and beyond. And the intention was to assimilate and erase Indigenous identity, which is the very definition of genocide. There was a willful attempt to exterminate a history and a memory and a possibility of even knowing. To continue a Canada without Indigenous law is to continue the colonization of Indigenous peoples in Canada. We're also going to celebrate the vital work of those who have fought tirelessly to make important truths known. But the more work that we can all do to discuss these truths, right, and to get these truths acknowledged in the public, the more that we can add and open those paths to healing. I never gave up telling my story that in the hopes that somebody would uh, hear the truth and accept it. Welcome to Tapuewin, talking about what we know and what we believe, a podcast from the territories of the Lekwungen peoples and the libraries and archives of the University of Victoria. So join me as we climb this mountain together. In late December of last year, I was ensconced in a tiny basement recording studio in the Student Union building at the University of Victoria. Across from me, sitting relaxed in an old chair, was Barney Williams, the very first person we talked to for this project. I I guess it's important to introduce myself with my traditional name, which is uh, Tlahuita, and it was a name given to me by my late uncle, Alec. Franco was one of the hereditary chiefs in my area. And the name was given after an incident in Ottawa when I uh, got really sick and uh, an uncle heard about it. So when I got home, they had a big feast and uh, he said, oh, you need to change your name because you had a close call. So, And my English name, of course, is Barney Williams, uh, named after my late father. Barney is many things, uh, an elder, a former social worker, a fluent Nuchanal speaker, and a dear friend. 
I'm from Tolkoi First Nations on the west coast of Vancouver. I uh, spent most of my life away after rest for work. And I left home, I think I left up in 1966 and lived away since. So. I first met Barney through the TRC, and over the course of the following years, we crisscrossed the country with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission together. Barney was a member of the Survivors Committee and also served as one of the elders to the TRC. For me, any project about truth needed to begin with Barney. You know, how would you, how would you say truth in your own language in, in the Chanalth? Is there, a, is there a word for that even? Uh, yeah, there is. Uh, I have to think about it, but I know that uh, in growing up in my granny's house, it was really important to be always uh, truthful. She used to say, uh, which means that you always speak the truth when you're when you're when you're talking to someone about whether it's something that you've done or something that's going on, or but always be honest and they come from the heart. I think that my understanding and teaching around truth was that it. Uh, it comes from the heart. If it doesn't come from the heart, then it's not the truth. When asking big questions or going about important work, or even when faced with an important decision to make, I've been taught to go back to the wise ones, the elders, to listen to the teachings they share, and to really ensure I'm grounding myself in those important lessons. What are the responsibilities that come along with an opportunity like this from your perspective? When we think about exploring the truth, um, we're going to talk to people, you know, do you have any particular thoughts on just the good way of doing this type of work? For me, it begins with the foundation of respect, right? The ability to be respectful of, of self so you can respect other people. The conversations in this episode are the ones that have really stayed with me as we've carried ourselves throughout this entire project. They've provided the foundation for our work and have shaped our approach and perspectives on how we're even going to ask the questions around truth-telling activities. We talk about self first, because I know if we don't respect ourselves, I would find it really challenging to respect other people. So conversations, uh, I believe, should, uh, should uh, be started from that foundation, that foundation of uh, respecting one another, respecting other people, so that uh, whatever the teaching is, whether it be teaching about traditions or protocol of the nations or, or speaking the truth, uh, truth-telling, and all the things that make for really good conversation, right? It was also critically important for me to speak to Barney because of his lived experiences. Barney is a survivor, one of the hundreds of thousands of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis children who were forced to attend residential or day schools across the country. He spent 13 years in residential schools on Vancouver Island and on the mainland. Think about truth in my own experience and having been in res and talking about what happened 
uh, years ago prior to the commission, prior to uh, residential school stuff that uh, the people that sometimes laughed or said, oh, yeah, right, you, those guys never do those kind of things, and uh, you shouldn't be telling lies, right? And, and didn't have the opportunity to explain that what I was saying was the truth. I was telling the truth because it needed to be heard. So truth, according to the elders, comes from the essence of your spirit, simakusti, or your uh, heart. If it's coming from there, then it's going to be impactful. And I find that. I mean, I I never gave up telling my story that, in the hopes that somebody would uh, hear the truth and accept it. It's interesting because um, there's the truth and then there's being believed. So there's truth and belief. As you said, you've been telling the truth all along. It's just nobody's been listening. Now, classic example again is the, the grave sites. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, uh, when I got the news, of course, I was devastated because I went to high school in Kamloops. In the summer of 2021, 215 unmarked graves of children that attended the Kamloops Residential School were discovered. There were things going on. Uh, we talked about it, but nobody listened again. So now it's uh, the whole country can now say, well, you know what, we can't challenge that. It's There's 215 graves that are there. So, so it was a lesson learned for them as well. This past December, I was scrolling through Facebook when I came across a post by an Indigenous archaeologist. It showed a map of Canada littered in dots and numbers. The accompanying text read, quote, I built a database of residential schools, Indian day schools, and Indian hospitals in Canada dating from 1620 to recent. 865 colonial institutions, a starting place of truth-telling. Tansi, hello. My name is Dr. Paulette Steves. I'm Cree Métis. I'm a uh, professor in anthropology and sociology at Algoma University and Canada Research Chair in Indigenous History, Healing and Reconciliation. Paulette is the researcher behind the Canadian Residential Schools and Colonial Institutions Database. She was motivated to begin this project when she began noticing that government statements typically placed inception of the residential school system in the 1880s. School started and I'm like, but wait, I was reading a document from um, a Native American educational group in the United States. And they clearly stated that the first school in the U.S. was opened in 1580 and in Canada in 1620. So why is our federal government saying, you know, the late 1800s? I'm like, that doesn't make sense. So I started researching it and looking into um, residential schools and colonial institutions like day schools and hospitals and industrial schools and realized that it's much bigger than the federal government has admitted. They don't teach the fact. They teach what fits the nation state. At the time of our conversation, her map had grown to include over 900 colonial institutions. And she's only learning more as time progresses. 
So one thing I just realized this week too, from another lady speaking to me from uh, Penticton, she was in a residential school there that was called a convent. So now I've realized, wow, I remember when I was five years old going to visit my older sister in a convent in Vancouver. It was a residential school, but they called it a convent. So now I'm like, holy, how many more sites are there we don't know about? Because they weren't listed in the federal registry as a residential school, but they were a residential school in a convent or attached to convent. So I know that the list of sites we have is definitely going to grow. But the stakes are higher than just ensuring the historical record reflects the full breadth and scale of the residential school system. And that relates most importantly to unmarked graves. So if we're going to look for unmarked graves, we need to know where to look. And if we only look at the sites the federal government uh, talks about, we're going to leave a lot of children behind. And that just really, really got to me. It just sent chills up my spine. I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. The need for Paulette's work reflects a number of central questions I've been wrestling with. Namely, what truths still need to be uncovered? And why have others been ignored for so long? It's hard for folks to believe that those things could happen because it's almost humanly impossible to conceive of such wickedness, of such horrible, horrible acts by one human being against another human being. Robina Thomas, Quatsiamat, is the formidable vice president indigenous here at UVic. Robina is of Snanemok and Stalo ancestry and Lyaxin through marriage. She's worked as an educator here at the university in the School of Social Work. One of the numerous topics occupying her teaching and research has been residential schools. When I'm talking to students, I say, we need to look at the policies and the practices. Um, We need to accept the fact that you weren't there that day. You weren't there to enact these policies and practices, but they were in place. So our responsibility, your responsibility as a Canadian is to own that those were Canadian policies and practices. And and then we can fight against the policies and practices. Well, I know it's very painful for First Nations and Métis and Inuit. And I know that every single First Nations, Métis and Inuit person today is a first or second or third or even fourth generation survivor. And I think it's really important. It, it's, a, it's an amazing time of learning for your average Canadian citizen about the level of genocide and colonization within Canada. We, we have to think about how we get people to, to believe that this is the truth. Um, but how do you get to that place where people can move past their own fear, their own inability to hear, their own inability to feel? 
to let these stories be told and let the truth be told and and let us move forward with it and so there's a lot of work that we still need to do in that in that real gray area in between where we know the truth is that we're not getting to in in the way that we really need to to move forward um in a good way and i think for Canada, the huge wake-up call is that we don't have an issue telling the truth. Yes, the federal government and educators would never speak about it, um, and it's been erased from history, and now we're we're unerasing that history. And that's a part of healing and reconciliation. You have to be able to give public testimony about what you've suffered or your community or family suffered to begin that healing process. It has to be acknowledged. For me, I guess I've always, I've always maintained that I would always tell the truth, no matter what the consequences. If I had to pay a price for it, then so be it. And I think in witnessing that with my granny and grandpa and all the elders that I met and how they sometimes would talk about stuff that was really hurtful, but at the same time, they said, we have to do this, we have to tell the truth. For her PhD dissertation, Robina interviewed 13 Coast Salish women. One of the themes that came out of that and one of the themes that was shared by all 13 women, obviously in different in different terminology, but all of them talked about how critically important it is to keep the past the present and the future connected at all times. And in our language, it's ha <laughs> which is sacred, yatsilas. She called this concept the sacred cycle, though cycle doesn't translate wholly between English and Halkamina. It means to kind of slowly stop and turn and look backwards and then look forward again. And so we don't have a word that transfers nicely, but that's as close as we could. And, and I actually thought that was really appropriate um, that there isn't, you know, a term for this, but this whole notion of just slowly looking over your shoulder or looking back. And when I would ask about this, everyone would say, Rabina, we have to, we have to maintain our language. We have to maintain our culture and our tradition. And in my language, we have a term called Snowilth. And Snowilth is a collective term, like our philosophy of life. It's our teachings. You know, there's all kinds of ways of looking at it. But collectively, all of these teachings are in place to make us the best human beings we can possibly be. So if we lose the language, we're going to start to lose teachings. And so it's really important that we don't lose the language. Language, too, is bound up in the intricacies surrounding truth. I had the good fortune, I would say a month ago, to be sitting in a student defense. And when we were done and all the academic work was done, her father asked for an opportunity to speak. And then he said, you have just witnessed Ho Huiem, Ho Huiem. And then he went on to say, you've witnessed an example of someone sharing their truth or telling a true or a real story. So, Huo Huiem 
is true or real, huiam is storytelling. And him, him linking the story of his daughter's experience in an Indian day school to huiam, this truth-telling. And that one word, that one change from hui to huo stopped me in my tracks. And so for me, I've, I've been sitting with that and sitting with those stories that make our lives are the truth. Truth to me is, is in the words of the elders. It's in the words of the, the storytellers, the knowledge keepers. That's where truth is. It's in our communities. It's in our our stories, our creation stories. It's in the name of land. Like, rarely is there a name that doesn't mean something that talks about how specific a rock is or a mountain is or a road or a river. Our, our words tell us those stories. They tell us that truth. And so I, I think that for me, truth has all of a sudden become so much more powerful and so much more rooted in Indigenous ways of knowing and being. There's not many of us speakers, fluent speakers like Norman Fleury, mm. that speaks not only Michifs, but I speak six other languages. And that's who we were as Michifs. We spoke all the language of the plains of our ancestors. We spoke Soto, we spoke Assiniboine, Sioux, Cree, French. But the English we didn't speak because we were not strong. Our ancestry, our gen uh, genealogy were not English. Norman Fleury is an old friend. Norman Fleury in the Shinnekashon, Emichifnia, the Michifn Bikshkwan, University of Saskatchewan, Detushkan, Egutin Nikshkanhamakan, the Michif, Matlanginan, Egwa Niapeek, Livu Mode, Egutik Skataman, Nikshnahamagayan, Egwa Mina, the Metis Nation, Saskatchewan, Detushkan, Omagalitapian, elder. My name is Norman Fleury and I work at the University of Saskatchewan as an elder. I also teach Michif. I work with schools across the province, north, central and south as a language keeper, also a, a knowledge keeper. I'm also working for the uh, both Métis Nation Saskatchewan's an elder, also as a teacher, but also at the university. I'm an elder and faculty and staff at the University of Saskatchewan. He's someone I've known since I was fairly young. We met, I could remember that uh, vividly in Winnipeg when you were with your parents and your sister and you came to an elder youth conference. And, uh, and we kind of hit her on. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, when I first met Norman, I was trying to unpack the Métis histories of my own family. Our relationship was instrumental in connecting a number of critical pieces of my own understanding of where I came from and who I was. But you were wanted to expand on, uh, on, on more research to know the history and uh, the culture and the language, the identity piece. Norman has played an essential role in the protection and promotion of Machif. He's a world-leading expert in the language. When I asked him about the relationship between language and truth, 
he recounted his own experiences trying to come up with a name on a task force he was part of. Well, when I'm at the university, we have, um, we have a committee and uh, we have some Cree, Asuro, and Michifs. So we said, we're going to find a word that's going to hold us together. And that's the truth. That's the word came up through this one person. They had a ceremony and this word came up through that, through the spirits of the truth. So he said, Debwewin, that's in Soto, Debwewin. In Cree, it's Tepwewin. In Michif, it's Tapwewin. So that's the word we use on this task force, the elders' task force, the truth. Norman described for us the way which Michif brings truth to life. I remember when I was a kid, when we'd walk through the bush, you could feel the feeling of those leaves under your feet. And as soon as you hear a sound, you knew that sound. Because we had a relationship. We knew each other. So, to understand. And, and when you talk about Tapwe Win, it's also to believe, you know. It's believing. Uh, it's, it's truth, but it's also and I believe it, you see. And when you say I believe in something, you got to make sure... What you're saying is, I believe that. Okay. See, that's why at home, when we spoke, you spoke with powerful words. You didn't speak just, just to speak. Uh, you have to use good words, strong words. When you live something for generations and generations, you know it's the truth or you wouldn't live it. When my grandfather used to tell us stories, those were his, the stories that he got from his grandparents. They lived it. That's the difference. You didn't have to talk about it. You lived it. It was vivid, you know what I mean? I think so much of what, what we're talking about here is... is our responsibilities, um, their ways of walking in the world, their their truths that we see, um, there's truths that we uphold, and I don't know. I, I even personally reflect back on on some of the teachings from dear elder Sylvia uh, from back in Winnipeg, and she always reminded me, "Way uh, winne," you know, walk slowly. No, don't run when you're traveling over rocks. You know, we don't use storytelling the same way that we used to use it years and years ago when Augie Sylvester from Penelicate, you know, shared a wild woman story with me and we were taught as children that there was a wild woman, Taltalos Lahaini, and she lived in the mountains um, and she was mean and ugly and stinky and, and she could fly um, and she had a basket on her back and she would come around the village looking for children. And it sounds horrible, and you think, why would you tell children this story? But what they told as they told the story was, you need to make sure you're home before it's dark. And so they would tell children when 
when the sun starts going down, you need to know, you need to pay attention because how long is it going to take you to get home? And so pay attention because you need to be home before it's dark. And so they, they told you all of the things. They told you to pay attention to your surroundings and they, they guided and directed you not to take dangerous routes. And, and they taught you all of the things about your surroundings so you could get home safely. And Wild Woman was aware of making sure that you were that you were worried and you had to get home. It's storytelling is not just about the information. It's about what it sets up as well. And it sets up a relationship. It sets up a, a visit and it sets up a an exchange that, you know, it's it's a it's an offering, it's a gift and it's not about which word is more right. It's uh it's uh, an opportunity to reflect and and enjoy uh these stories and, and to and then to think about what that leaves in our minds afterwards. You know, I think about how intentional storytelling was and purposeful. You didn't just tell stories to kill time. You told stories to teach. You told stories to protect. You told stories to keep our communities rooted in their culture and tradition to know their creation stories, to know where they came from, to know the, the land where they came from. And so it was so purposeful and so intentional. And we just need to remember. Nobody will tell you a story just to tell you a story. Mm. They have to feel in their own minds and say, I think it's, uh, it'll be safe for me to share with this person. For me to tell my story today, if I didn't know you, and for all these years and didn't respect you, I wouldn't tell you this story. Because where is it going to go? Is it going to waste someplace? Is my voice going to be gone out all over the place after I'm gone? You know, you got to protect your voice, especially when you're going to talk about things that are really mean a lot to you. It takes a lot to give something away. During our conversation with Norman, I asked him about the responsibilities we would need to be mindful of as we carried the stories throughout this podcast. You know, you, you got to be careful how you talk about things because you can hurt yourselves more can, than you can do yourself any good sometime. All these things we're talking about now, it's all about words. Words matter. Words are very important. Like we talk about Tapwe when Debwe when you know, we talk about Matu when we talk about Koyashpik Square, Kayagakiaske. You know, all these words you talk about Koyashpik Square, Koyashachimo, Kaoyakpahpehe, Kaoyakchamachemat. So they talked about Koyashpik Square to speak right. Don't lie. And uh, that means don't disrespect a human being. If we want to leave a legacy, if we want to leave something, because what we're saying is we're saying let's not ever let that happen again. So what do we put there to be able to deter that from ever happening again, you know? Towards the end of our visit with Norman, 
I asked him if he had any thoughts on what we might call this project. Something that reflected both our goals and our responsibilities in truth-telling. Like for me, I would call it Monestuer, uh, my story. Mm. Uh, and you're talking about everybody else too, or no? Yeah, we're, we're talking to a lot of different people, actually. So we've talked to Coast Salish people, Haida, Kwakwakwak, Chanoff, um, Cree, Machif, talking about what we know because that's what we're doing we're talking about what we know but you would want it specifically or i mean that's interesting how would how would, if we were to s- just slow that down a bit um how would you say that again telling about what we know it doesn't have to be specific about because that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. It's just yeah. we're, we're talking about the things that we know about this complicated topic of truth. Yeah. Yeah. Because if you were saying, Talking about what we know and what we believe. Three different ways. Hmm. Mm-hmm. what we're talking about, telling it. what we know, what we believe. When I worked at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, each of our national events was themed around one of the seven sacred teachings, principles that are essential to the ongoing work of healing underway across Turtle Island. These teachings encompass the values of respect, courage, wisdom, love, honesty, humility, and truth. Through my own journey, I've come to know that truth does not exist on its own in these teachings. A practice and approach of truthfulness is grounded in a balance between all of these principles operating in good relationship with each other. I think that as I've walked further down this path myself, those teachings of respect and humility really remind me that there's so much to know and still so much I have to learn. In honor of the conversations we've had during this episode, we've decided to call this podcast series Tapuewin, talking about what we know and what we believe. Over the course of this season, we're taking a deep dive into truth through a different topic within each episode. We're talking about everything from art and museums. You know, I love museums, but I'm also very conscious of the fact that museums are colonial in the, like, very definition. The knowledge is all there in, in the visual artwork, and it's just for us to unlock that puzzle. To the suppression of documents and history. Fear of the truth coming out, of people knowing, of the public knowing what actually happened, because If people don't know, they can't hold you to account. And what was done with that? Well, the federal government wants to burn all those records and destroy them. To the history behind people and place names. It really started to paint a clear picture that the people that came here named these places after themselves. When you take away our names and you take away the opportunities to share those stories, you take away all of the responsibility that those names carry as well. The commissioners described a mountain ahead on this path of reconciliation. 
it is clear the climb has already started. What is also clear is that truth remains a powerful force, one that must come before reconciliation. I look forward to our visits together through this podcast series. Thanks for listening. Until next time. This podcast was created through the direct teamwork of an incredible group of people. It was written and produced by Karina Greenwood and myself, editing and consulting by Cassidy Vilburn Baracus, mixing and mastering by Matthias Leitch, and music by myself, Ramaran. Special thanks to the University of Victoria Libraries team that assisted in countless ways on this production, and to Media One for audio content. Marci to our guests, Barney Williams, Paulette Steves, Robina Thomas, and Norman Fleury. Tapuewin is made possible through the University of Victoria Strategic Framework Impact Fund and with direct support from the University of Victoria Libraries and CFUV Radio. This podcast was created in unceded Lekwungen and Wissanic territories. <laughs>